0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel Podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Moore. I'm truly grateful for the work that Pastor Josh did over the last several weeks preaching and teaching God's word here on the last three Sundays. And I'm just thankful because our family had the opportunity to go away to a wedding and just uh, be able to spend some time at a conference and and then come back and, and just know that things were in good hands. So I'm grateful for his ministry to us in the word. This morning, we're gonna continue the series of messages that Pastor Josh was doing and that I had started before I went away talking about the fact that it's time. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now's the time of salvation. And so we're exploring what is involved when we talk about somebody getting saved. What is it that Jesus does? What did he do when he died on the cross? And what is it that happens when a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ? And we've talked about the fact that they, be, they get rescued. They get rescued from their sins and they become members of God's family and they're they set free and, and they they experience new life and we've talked about that and they experience forgiveness as well and these are all the benefits and all the 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 joys and gifts that come that are part of salvation A lot of times, though, we struggle with really experiencing those in our lives. We don't feel like we've been forgiven. We don't feel like that we really are experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised. We we say that we have peace with God because of our faith in Jesus, because he's justified us, and yet we struggle with, you know, I feel very anxious, and I'm afraid, and, and I'm upset, and so how do we experience all that? And and how do we really have the fullness of the the salvation that we've been given in Christ? How do we really appropriate that and make it part of our daily experience? And that's why it's important that today, that we focus on one final, very needy aspect, very necessary for us to receive, uh, one final aspect of what happened when Jesus was dying on the cross. Now there's some other things and we'll be talking about them in the context of joining the family of God over the next several weeks and uh, come on home, we'll be, we'll be looking at that. But I want us to focus on the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he was fighting a battle, not just paying for our sins, Not just making people alive, not just, you know, bringing about our justification, having us declared right in the sight of God. Beyond all of that, he was doing battle, a cosmic battle with the forces of evil and wickedness in this universe, and he defeated them. He won the victory on the cross. In fact, you could say it this way, the cross, when Jesus was hanging and dying, there was like the greatest jujitsu move of all time. The forces of wickedness came against him to destroy him and crush him. There, as he hung on that cross, dying for our sins, they came to attack him. They came to crush and destroy him. But in his death and in his resurrection, the tables were turned. There was that great move, that great jujitsu move of him changing, and he became victorious. Their force was thrown against themselves, and they were conquered and Jesus has defeated the devil and now the victory is ours. That's what happened at salvation and because of that victory, you and I can experience the abundant life and can experience freedom from worry and we can have peace with God and we can be confident about our home and future because Jesus Christ has fought that battle and won and has defeated all our enemies once and for all. And I would like to show you a passage of scripture and talk about it with you this morning unpack it so that you and I can see this for ourselves and how to apply it to our lives, how we can live in this victory every single day because Jesus has defeated the devil and the victory is ours, he's given it to us. And so how do we appropriate it and make it ours as well? So I invite you to take your Bible please and turn to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter two, and we're gonna start reading at verse six. It's time to overcome, it's time for victory, it's time to live in the victory that we have in Christ. And this is Colossians chapter two, starting at verse six. This is page 984, 984 if you'd like to follow along with one of the Bibles from church. Colossians chapter two, verse six. I need to tell you up front that what I really wanna focus on is verse 15, but to understand verse 15, you gotta start back at verse six. And so that's where we're going to be starting at and walking through together as well. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Christ has defeated the devil and he's given us the victory. Our job now is to, by faith, take that victory and live it out every single day. And as we do that, we will experience that abundant full life that God has planned for us, that Christ has purchased for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The Colossians were a group of Christians. They were new believers. Apostle Paul had never met them, but he had heard about this church and he was writing to encourage them. He was writing to offer his spiritual counsel and help to them because he had heard that false teachers had arrived to try to lead them astray. And these false teachers were trying to deceive them two ways. On the one hand, part of their teaching was you need to keep the Ten Commandments. You need to keep the Law of Moses. You need to keep the rules and rituals and regulations of the Mosaic Code. You need to eat kosher. You need to keep the Ten Commandments. You men need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to do all these rules and regulations first before you can come to Christ, before you can get saved. But then it was also mixed with another philosophy that came in. And by the way, besides all this rule-keeping and regulations you need to do, you got to worship these different angels. See, you're in a situation where there's a holy God, and here you are as a mere mortal, sinful, and there's such a great gap between you that there's a hierarchy of angels. You can just imagine a ladder full of angels, and you need to pray to them to help you know God. And relate to him you need to pray to them you need to do magical spells you need to do other things to try to influence them and get them on your side so they'll take your prayers and bring it to god so that they will bring you into the presence of god and give you the favor of god there's a huge gap between you and your creator and you can never know him without the help of these angels that was their philosophy the elemental spirits that are talked about in this passage So this two-pronged philosophy was leading these people astray. They were turning away from Christ. And what Paul does in writing this letter is, no, you've got to stick with Christ. That's why he says in verse 6, you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Keep walking in Him. It's a journey. Keep walking on this path. Keep in your relationship with Christ. You're rooted in him. You heard the gospel. You believed it. You, you're like a seedling planted in the floor of a forest. You, you're there planted. Now you need to grow. And get stronger in your faith. You've been established in the faith and you need to abound in thanksgiving. And it's this idea, he's kind of mixing a bunch of metaphors here. He says you're on a path and you've been planted like a tree. You need to grow like a tree, but you're also like a building that needs to be built up stronger. And he's piling these metaphors up to get across the idea of making progress spiritually and growing, become, bec- becoming more like Jesus Christ. Growing in, in your likeness to him. That's what he's talking about, that's the path, that's the plan of God for your life. Don't be led astray. He gives a warning in verse eight, and the warning is this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. What he's saying here is, there you are. You're going down that path. You're growing stronger in your faith. You're becoming more like Jesus. You're resembling him day by day more and more. Beware, somebody's going to jump out from the bushes and try to kidnap you and take you hostage. Somebody wants to kidnap you and lead you astray. And they're going to do this through this empty philosophy that's built on lies. You need to know the truth. And I'm going to tell you the truth The truth is Jesus has defeated the devil and the victory is yours. You can walk in that and claim it. That's the truth. And so he unpacks that and explains how to prevent from getting kidnapped and held hostage when you're on this path of becoming more like Christ. Don't let anybody, any philosophy lead you astray. So in verse 9, He begins to amplify this. And he says that the reason why you need to stick with Christ is because, it says, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. You see, you need Jesus because everything that God is, is in Jesus. You don't need all those angels to take you to God. You don't need all those demons to take you to God. You don't need all those spirits or saints to take you to God. You don't need all that. You have God and you here you are on earth and guess what? The fullness of God is in Jesus Christ in bodily form. Everything that God is came to earth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas. It's not peace on earth although that's a wonderful thing. It's not the warm, fuzzy feelings we get from being with family. The thing we are worshiping and celebrating and giving glory to God for at Christmas is the fact that everything that God is was wrapped up in that little baby laying in the manger there with Mary and Joseph. That little baby, he is the mighty God, we say from Isaiah chapter 9. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor that baby is the mighty god everything that there is about god all he is his wisdom his glory his power his majesty his strength and might and grace it's all wrapped up in him his love is there in him you don't need those angels you don't need those spirits to bring you into god's presence you don't need to keep all those rules and regulations to try to curry god's favor no you need jesus He is supreme over every angel and every spirit and every power and every authority. And He is not only supreme, He is sufficient. He is sufficient for the believer because He has defeated the devil and has given us the victory. He is superior and sufficient and preeminent over every power that there is. In fact, he amplifies that even more when he says, and you have been filled in him. That word in verse 9 where it says the whole fullness of the deity, and then in verse 10 where it says, and you have been filled with him. It's the same word. One is the verbal form and the other is the noun form. And he's saying all the fullness of God is in Jesus. there in human flesh that Jesus who walked on earth, raising the dead, healing the sick, walking on water, preaching the good news, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, that Jesus, all of, everything that God is is in him. And you're filled up with him if you're in Christ. All the fullness of Jesus resides in each and every child of God. Do you understand that? I mean, that's something that takes a little work to wrap your mind around. But no matter who you are, how long you've been a believer, how long you've been a Christian, no matter whether you stumbled this morning, last night, the day before, or whether you've been growing strong and have memorized a thousand Bible verses, it doesn't matter. If you belong to Christ, Christ is in you and all the fullness of God lives inside of you. It's in you. And he explains what this means. What it simply means is this. Uh, And you were filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So if Jesus Christ is over all the authority in the universe, every ruler, every power, every leader, general, king, queen, emperor, empress, whoever they are, every president, every CEO, if Jesus Christ is the authority over all the authorities in the universe and he lives inside of you, guess what you have? All authority. That's the first aspect of this victory of Jesus when he defeated the devil and has given us the victory. He's given us this authority. It's our authority. You could look at it this way. It's like a chain of command, a command chart here. Okay, so at the top of the food chain, we'll say is Jesus Christ. And under him is Satan and all the angels and demons, okay? And under him are human beings. And under them are the animals and the plant world, okay? And that's what it looks like for everyone who's not a follower of Christ. Again, Jesus Christ, the devil, the demons, humans, and then animals and plants. But for the believer, the command structure is very different. The order of authority is very different. You have Jesus Christ, that's the same because he's the King of kings and Lord of lords and all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. He's the head over all creation and over every authority. So there's Jesus Christ, that stays the same. But instead of Satan being next or the angels being next, it's the believer, it's the child of God. It's the person that's put their trust in Christ, the man or woman, boy or girl who believes in Christ and is following him. They're next in authority. And then there's the devil. And then there's the angels and demons. And then there's the unsaved human beings. And then the animal and plant world. Do you see the difference? In Christ, we share his authority. We're under his authority, but we share his authority. That means we don't have to give in when the devil tells us to do something. You don't know, you can say no to him. No. Like a defiant two year old. No. But it's not an issue of self actualization, it's an issue of claiming your authority in Christ. I don't have to give in to this sin. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to be negligent in my responsibilities. I don't have to give in and do the sinful thing. I can do what's right because I have the authority in Christ to do this. You and I know this. We, every time we pray, just about every time, I'll say this, when you finish your prayers, what do you say? And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. We often do that. And the trouble is we often treat that in Jesus' name like a little, you know, lucky rabbit's foot. I better stroke my rabbit's foot. You know, say this in Jesus' name when I finish prayers or maybe Jesus is not going to answer my prayer. God's not going to hear my prayer. I better say in Jesus' name. It's not that at all. It's not a magical formula. It's not a passcode that you need to type in or a password. No, it's saying I'm asking this in the name of Jesus with his authority. I'm asking for these things because this is what he would ask for. I'm praying for these things because I really understand that in Christ I'm under his authority and I'm asking for what he would ask for. I'm asking in his name. That changes how we pray, doesn't it? we need to be careful about what we pray for. We need to be making sure that we're praying for things that we think are truly the will of God. And we leave it in His hands, even if we're uncertain. We still pray, but we pray in the name of Jesus because we're asking because of Him and His authority that He has shared with us. Now, this victory that we have because Jesus has defeated the devil, it's expanded even further, and it's even richer and deeper than just the idea I have authority now i not only have the authority because sometimes you can have the authority but not have the power to do it you ever been in a situation like that at work where the boss puts you in charge but nobody has to listen to you <laughs> you know you get frustrated i don't have i can't exact i can't punish anyone i can't you know change anything i can't do anything but i've got the authority and i've got the responsibility but i don't have any power and we all joke about that and laugh about that because it's obviously an extremely frustrating situation to be in But Jesus not only gives us the authority, but he gives us the power. The power to do what's right. The power to obey him. Now notice what he says in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And you're saying, Pastor, that is just kind of creepy. Why are we talking about circumcision in the middle of all that? You know, and I know it's not because we're just a cut above the rest and things like that. But it's important to understand that what Paul is doing here is a metaphor, he's using a metaphor that will appeal to all the people that leaned toward that wrong philosophy that was deceiving people. They were leaning toward that, well, I don't believe in all those angels, but I do wanna keep a bunch of rules and I do wanna be, you know, become kosher and keep the Sabbath. and circum- I believe in all these rule keeping and religious regulations. I believe in that. So he's kind of tweaking them a little bit and maybe trolling them a little bit and saying, okay, we're going to talk about circumcision. You're so concerned about circumcision and being kosher and right and holy and ritually and religiously. So I want to focus on the circumcision of Christ. And he's not talking about the circumcision that happened after, you know, Jesus was born eight days later at the temple when a little piece of skin was cut off. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the death of Christ. That big, horrific, bloody, cutting off of the life of Christ he uses a metaphor to describe it as it's like a circumcision and it's a circumcision this death of Christ was so powerful that it actually led to a circumcision that anyone who trusts in Christ experiences men and women and it's not a bloody physical circumcision it's a circumcision made without hands he says do you notice that He's talking about the cutting off of the body of the flesh. and he's not talking about our physical bodies there. He's talking about that sinful nature that we all have. It's called the flesh. He's not saying that your body is evil and wrong and bad. He's not saying that. But he is talking about that aspect of your life and mind, in our mind, in your life and mind, in our minds and in our bodies. Even in our our spirits and our attitudes, that tendency that we all have to do the wrong thing, to hurt ourselves, to hurt other people and offend God, that part of us where it just flows out, we tell lies when we're afraid to cover for ourselves, where we're prideful and boastful and think we're superior to other people and judge other people in the process, where we're boastful and arrogant, where we're bitter and resentful, where we're lustful and greedy. All those things flow out of those appetites, those drives, those desires, those habits, all flow out of this body of ours. That's because that sinful tendency, that propensity to do the wrong thing, that tendency to do the wrong thing flows out of every cell of our body. It's not just up here somewhere in the brain that you could do some sort of spiritual lobotomy and fix it. It's not that. It's something that we need a radical spiritual circumcision to cut that off. And it's by the death of Christ. And you see that amplified in Romans chapter 6 in particular and spelled out in 7 and 8 as well. But it's indicating that we don't have to give in to those fleshly sinful tendencies anymore. We can say no to them. And he amplifies it even more. And he's saying here that not only have we been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, talking about his death, but we have been buried with him In baptism, that's why I think this circumcision in verse 11, I think it's talking about his death. It's a metaphor for his death because he jumps right into verse 12 and talks about being buried, a burial. And we have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And what he's saying here, as I understand it, is simply this. You not only died with Christ and shared his life and his death on the cross. You not only died with him, but you've been buried with him. And not only were you buried with him, but you were resurrected with him. And you've been raised with the supernatural power of God. So there's this freedom that I don't have to give in to sin anymore. I don't have to yield to it any longer even though it feels like every cell in my body is screaming, I've got to give in and satisfy this desire. I've got to lie to preserve myself. I've got to take this or I'll never be happy. I've got to eat this, drink this, look at this, whatever it might be. You don't have to. You've been freed from that. And you not only don't have to, but now there's a power to help you not do it and to do the right thing instead. And he's talking about this when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. The power of God that's been put into the child of God's life is so powerful that it raised Jesus from the dead. That's how powerful it is. It can conquer death and that power is inside of every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. That power of God is there resident inside of them. They just have to be willing to use it. Another way to describe it is the presence of the Holy Spirit filling our lives. The very resurrection power of God in His Spirit residing inside everyone who's a Christian gives them the power to be able to resist sin and do what's right. The devil lies to you and I and tells us that we have to give in to sin, that we have to yield to it. And God wants you to know is you don't have to yield to it. You've been set free from it and I can give you the power to say no to it and yes to me. I can give you the power to not be let fear overwhelm you. I can give you the power to speak up and testify of me. I can do that. Because it's the resurrection power of Christ that's inside of you now as a child of God. Now, if you've never trusted Christ, that power's not there. You're all by yourself and you'll never be able to battle sin and defeat it on your own. You've got to come to a place where you're willing to commit your life and your will to the care and control of Christ. You've got to surrender to him. Stop denying that you can handle it yourself and confess to him and surrender to him and ask him to come in and fill you with his presence and he will show you how you've died with him and set you free through that death and how he gives his power to help you do what's right and honor him and experience the life that he's meant for you to have. This is all ours because of what Christ has done. Christ has defeated the devil and he's given us the victory. Not only the authority to resist the devil, but the power to do what's right. The power to obey the Lord and do his work. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I and inside of us. And you're saying, well, how do I know? How do I know it's really mine? Just take a minute, maybe a little later, maybe while you're listening today, but just start at verse six and just kind of work through this passage down to verse 15. And notice every time it says in him, or with him or in whom. It's referring to the fact that we share the life of Christ. We share his authority and we share his power if we're the children of God. This is yours, this is mine because we share the life of Christ if you belong to him. But this victory is even better. It's even richer, it's even more complete. It is a total complete victory once and for all. Because notice what he says in verse 13. And you, yes, even you, and you who were dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision, here it's referring to the fact that they were pagans, they weren't part of the Jewish culture, and they were really lost as far as God was concerned. And you who were dead in your trespasses, your sins and violations of God's law and your uncircumcision, your ignorance and not knowing the Lord and the circumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What we have here is the explanation of the fact that this victory that we have in Christ is so complete that it's over every accuser, over over every accusation that is leveled against us. Jesus Christ took those accusations and he nailed them to his cross. And they never tear off and blow in the wind and come back to haunt you. They're removed from you once and for all. And so every sin has been wiped away. Every guilt has been wiped away. Every shame has been wiped away. And the record of the charges that were against us, that's been wiped away. I read recently about a man who got a traffic ticket in a pe- small Pennsylvania town. He had moved to California, and 40 years later, he found his traffic ticket. It was for $2, and he felt, started to feel guilty, and he sent a $5 bill and the ticket and said, I'm sorry, and mailed it back 40 years later. And that ticket would have cost $20 today in that town. But there was this written record that kept reminding him that he would overstayed his time allotment in a parking lot. The records do that to us. They remind us of our failures, and the accusations remind us of our failures, and they remind us of our sins. But the victory of Christ is so complete, we share not only his authority, not only his power, but we share his victory. And that victory is so complete, it is over every accusation against us. And you and I, even if nobody else has a record of all the wrongs we've done, you know what you've done wrong, and I know what I've done that's wrong. And I tell you, if we sat here at church and somehow could make a DVD, high definition, documentary of the life and failures of Scott Morgan, you would find it immensely entertaining you feel pretty good about yourself when it was done. But I probably would feel the same way about watching yours. We all have a recorded memory file of all our failures. And Jesus is saying those records, Paul is saying that Jesus, when he died on that cross, was dying that our sins might be paid for. And that record of accusations against us was nailed to the cross. It was crucified with him. It is no longer held against you. That's how complete the victory is. But then notice verse 15. This is an absolutely wonderful verse. It's beautiful. It describes the defeat of the devil in such complete terms. In fact, it almost sounds shockingly decisive and shockingly devastating. And yet it's so important that we see it. Would you read verse 15 with me, please? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When it talks about the rulers and authorities like it did earlier in this passage where it said that Jesus had, had, he was the head over all the the rulers and authorities, he's, he's talking about the demonic spirits. He's talking about Satan, the demons, the angels. He has authority over all of them. And it says here that he, was able to disarm the rulers and their authorities. He was able to get the drop on them and disarm them. They had to drop their weapons. They had to take their armor off. It's like what Jesus described in Luke chapter 11, where it says there was a man who was very rich and very wealthy, and he had his armor on, and he was guarding his house. But then a stronger man came and overpowered him, and he was able to plunder the man's house. And the analogy that Jesus is making there that Paul is amplifying as well here in Colossians chapter 2 is that here was Satan who was in charge of all this world who ruled over the sinful affairs of men and women and he was in charge and he thought he was rich and he thought he was secure. But Jesus came and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection he disarmed the devil. Stripped him of his weaponry, stripped him of his armor. And he was able to plunder the house and rescue people that were being held captive there, that were being held hostage there. His prisoners were set free. His kingdom fell because the kingdom of Christ has come. And he set the captive free. But the victory is even more complete than this. He not only disarmed them, but it says that he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the word picture that he's using here is from the first century ancient Rome that when a Roman general would come back to the capital city, come back to Rome after defeating an enemy power somewhere else off in the far reaches of the empire. They would come back to Rome with the enemy uh, with the enemy prisoners of war and with the captured king and with the victorious army and they would go on parade. It was a military parade where they would march through the main street of Rome and the soldiers, as they're marching down the street with their spears and their swords and their shields and their, their, their royal battle dress and they're marching down the street and as they're marching, they're singing triumph the praises of the general that won the glories of the Roman Empire the glories of the emperor they're singing all these praises giving glory for the victory that's been won and then the prisoners were paraded along and the enemy king that was captured and all this went forth and the picture here is that Jesus died on the cross and by dying on the cross he disarmed the devil and by rising from the dead he gave power over the devil victory over the devil as well and the demons as well And he led them on a victory parade to the very throne room of heaven where Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father and all the enemies of God, the demons, the devil himself, have been exposed as being weak and powerless and losers and utterly defeated because of the glorious victory of Christ. He led them on parade and humiliated them in this way because he has risen from the dead and ascended into glory and is coming back and power and great glory. And so in all of this, there's this this imagery about Jesus being the divine warrior. And he came to earth, but the battle was fought at the cross. And at that cross where Jesus hung, the hatred... The animosity the bitterness and pride and arrogance of rome was arrayed against him and the hatred and the bitterness and the jealousy and the animosity of the religious establishment came against him in full force too and at that moment the lack of love the lack of fidelity and faithfulness the betrayal of judas The denial of Peter, the desertion of the rest of the disciples, all that human sin also came against Christ on his cross. And all the mockery and all the disappointment and all the hatred of humanity, the sinfulness of humanity, came rushing in to crush Jesus and destroy him. And he died. But then he rose from the dead, victorious over all those powers once and for all. And so today, you and I can experience the victory in Christ because Jesus defeated the devil and all our enemies. He has defeated them and we can live in victory. Now, I need to tell you that as I study this passage and as I preach it, I go, wow, the authority of God is mine. Wow, the power of God is mine. Wow, the victory of God is mine. All because of Jesus, that's great. But then I have this little nagging doubt. How come I'm still tempted and I give in? How come I still struggle to forgive when I've been hurt? How come I struggle with not looking at things I shouldn't look at? Or I struggle with not being kind and gentle when I've been hurt. How come I still struggle with sin? And beyond that, how come this world is still so evil? How come there's terrorism? How come there's violence? How come there's divorce? How come there's abuse? How come all these things are happening? How come there are these wars? If Jesus has won such a great victory, why do I struggle with my sin? And why is all this wickedness and violence in my world? I don't get it. and someone said it was like this there was a man his name was jeremy sheffield he lives down in corpus christi texas and last year he was out in his yard with his wife and as they were working in their their garden the wife was startled because there was a four foot long timber rattlesnake there in their garden and so jeremy runs to the house and he gets a shovel and he does what a good husband does he takes a shovel and decapitates the snake chops its head off. But then he did something really stupid. He picked up the head and it bit him. And the thing that's unusual in this case is that normally when a snake strikes, it strikes and then jumps back. So it's just a quick strike like that. This thing hit him and it held on. And if you remember the way a, a snake's anatomy is, is that they have these sacks of venom venom in their cheeks and the, the fangs are like hypodermic needles and the, the venom sac is like the barrel of a, of a needle and then there are these muscles that squeeze the the venom sac, the glands that have the venom and that's like the plunger okay and so it's like the full injection of the venom well his wife thankfully is a nurse she knew what to do she gets on her phone finds out where's the closest hospital that has anti-venom that would help him it's an hour away. She loads him up in the car, and they start racing to the hospital. Two miles into their journey to the hospital, he starts going blind. He starts having seizures. He's sick. He doesn't realize yet. He's already started to bleed internally. Just two, you know, within a few minutes of being bit by the, venom, by the venomous snake. A snake that we thought was dead because he had its head chopped off. She calls, they send an ambulance, they race an ambulance a certain distance, they get a helicopter, they medevac him to the hospital. Thankfully, he gets the anti-venom and he survives. It's amazing that he survived. The moral of the story is, don't pick up the head of the snake. (laughs) But that's exactly what's going on in our lives. The devil is defeated. His head has been crushed by Christ on the cross. But we're waiting for that day for when he will, as we read in Revelation last year, when when Jesus, when he comes in power and glory, will take the devil himself and throw him and his demons into the lake of fire where they will burn forever and ever. And we're waiting for that final judgment when the devil will be destroyed once and for all and the victory of Christ will be complete. We live in this in-between time where the devil was defeated on the cross and through the resurrection and through the ascension, he's been defeated once and for all and he has no more authority over us and we have power to resist him and we have this total victory over our accusations that have been leveled against us and the accusers, the adversaries that fight against us. We don't have to give in to them anymore. We can resist the devil and he will flee from us but we struggle with that battle. He's like that head that just wants to bite. If you're not careful for those of you that don't like snakes and you haven't been listening to anything I've been saying the last couple minutes I don't blame you I really don't blame you think of it historically and use the analogy of June 6 1944 when the Allied armies invaded the beaches of northern France and there was the Battle of Normandy where the Allies were able to establish a foothold and because that day and the days following they prevailed against the Nazi onslaught, victory was assured that 11 months later on May 8, 1945, the Third Reich capitulated and it was Victory in Europe Day. Those 11 months there were major battles, skirmishes, successes and failures, the battle of the bulge, a huge land battle. But all the time the momentum was shifting against the allies, excuse me, against the, the Nazis and the Axis powers, and the Allies were advancing and winning. Child of God, Jesus Christ has given you a victory that's so complete. You have the authority of God, you have the power of God. You have the very victory of God over every adversary and every accusation because of Christ. He has stripped them of their weapons, and all they can do is lie to you. All they can do is taunt you, boast against you, threaten you, but they have no power. You have the truth of Christ. You have the armor of God. You have the strategy of God revealed in Scripture here that you and I can read and follow. And that victory begins to be our experience day by day as we surrender to Christ. If you submit to God and resist the devil, the devil will put his tail between his legs and run from you in fear. From you, child of God. No matter who you are, no matter whether you fell flat on your face morally yesterday, he will run from you today. If you surrender to God, he will flee from you, the devil will. And not only do we have boldness and power and authority to resist the devil, but we have boldness and authority and power and victory to testify of all that Christ has done. We can stand up against the evil and wickedness in our world and oppose it. We can do what is right and defend the weak and the poor and the frail and the oppressed, And we can testify of all that Christ has done and give that good news the song of liberty, the sound of freedom. That's our message. That will advance the kingdom of God. That's what we can do as we wait for that final chapter of the victorious battle against Satan when the book is closed and Satan is defeated fully and completely once and for all. It all started on the cross in the empty tomb. It'll culminate at the lake of fire. In the meantime, we've been given the authority, the power, and the victory to resist the devil and do the work of God and bring glory to his name. Cheer up, you saints of God. There's nothing to make you feel afraid. There's nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails. So why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry that you worried at all tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would cheer us up this day, Lord. Make us to see this great victory that's ours in Christ that we now can stand on the battlefield victorious in Christ using the weapons of our warfare, the armor of God. Yes, the devil still tries to shoot his flaming arrows at us, his his doubts, his temptations, his solicitations to do what's evil. But thank you, Lord, that by your authority and with your power, we have victory in our lives today because of Christ. May we surrender to Him and yield to Him and see that our salvation has been made complete because Jesus defeated the devil and the victory is now ours. Thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.